0: We are a week into this season called Lent. Lent is a fast that leads to a feast. What are we feasting? Well, we're feasting or we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, which is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. The resurrection is our great hope. The resurrection is the good news. The resurrection is the ultimate proclamation that Jesus has overcome sin and death. Death is not the end of the story anymore. For a very long time, death did have the last word, but then Jesus, who is the word of life, entered into the world, entered into our life, even entered into death in all of its finality, but then overcame death so that the story does not end with death anymore. The whole paradigm has been flipped now. Death no longer is at the end of the sentence. Something more powerful has replaced that word, and that's the word resurrection, resurrection has overcome sin and death, specifically the resurrection of Jesus. The reality of the resurrection, friends, is what is the primary proclamation of the Christian church. The the seven sermons in the book of Acts focus on this truth. Jesus has raised, has been raised from the dead. It moves and changes everything for the early Christians. I wonder does it affect us? Has it become an overly familiar idea, truth, proclamation for us? So we hear resurrection and we're like, oh yeah, that's just part of the story. The resurrection fills the first Christians with unprecedented courage. I wonder, does it have a real life effect on us? Did it this last week? Was there ever any, uh, a situation... In your, in your week, these last few days, where resurrection became part of the equation, part of the way you viewed reality, part of the way you responded to pain or to uh, challenges... Is the resurrection making a difference in our lives? Within the first few hundred years of Christianity, this pattern emerges. And it's a, it's a preparation for the celebration of the resurrection at Easter. And here's the pattern. In the weeks leading up to Easter, the early church would fast. That's interesting. They would fast in preparation for a big celebration. Why would they fast? Well, they would fast to prepare their hearts to really enter into the celebration. They would fast in order to ready their souls. So they wouldn't just sort of stumble in to their worship gathering like it might feel like we're doing on the first Sunday uh, of Daylight Savings, right? Just a little bit off our game. No, they want to come in ready to celebrate, having prepared their hearts to celebrate, prepared their souls to proclaim the ultimate paradigm-shifting truth, which is that death is not the end. It does not have the last word. It is not the most powerful force in the universe. Something more powerful than that is in play now. It's the resurrection of Jesus. That changes everything for them. So to prepare to celebrate this is a great idea. It is a worthwhile effort. And A fast is what prepares us or readies us to truly feast. Now, you might not think a whole lot about modern church trends. I do. I think about them a lot. It's kind of my space, it's kind of my industry. When people say, So, what kind of work do you do? Yesterday I was at a baseball game late at night, and uh, this guy was like, Yeah, this is going late, but at least tomorrow's Sunday. I'm going, "Ah," Right? I'm going, I feel the opposite about the way you're feeling about tomorrow tomorrow morning, right? So when people ask me what I do, I usually respond with something about the church. Uh, I lead a church. I pastor a church. Is usually what I say. And I wonder if when you respond to the question, what do you do, if if you have throughout your life heard a common reaction to your response. In other words, do people say something back to you when you reveal to them what you do that, is it just random all the time, or because of your industry, or because of the kind of work do you do, do you get a common response? I get a common response. Nine times out of ten, this is what people say when they say, hey, so what what do you do? And I say, oh, I pastor a church. This is what they do. Oh. (laughs) And then they say, good for you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I need, I need like a a zinger right there. I need to like have some pithy, but I haven't found it yet. Uh, For a while I was saying, I hope it's good for you. And then they look at me like, what is he going to do next? (laughs) Yeah. So I was talking about church trends. That's what I was trying to say. So there's this trend. Last couple decades, 40 days. It's this thing, 40 days of, you've seen this. I think maybe Rick Warren at least popularized this couple decades ago, 40 days of purpose. A lot of churches did this initiative. 40 days of purpose It's followed by 40 days of prayer. There's 40 days of life. There's 40 days of all kinds of things. Just like a programmatic kind of intentional season of, nothing wrong with it. It's fantastic. Uh, Churches will often start their year with like 40 days of this. I just find it interesting because it's often kind of seen as, oh, that's kind of a cool trend. It's not a, it's a very old thing. It's a very old thing. It's been rediscovered. It's so valid, in other words, that people keep coming back to it. It's called Lent. That's what it is. It's called Lent. And the the hope uh, is that it wouldn't just be some random 40-day season plopped in the middle, of, but that it would be connected to and actually be a preparation for something significant, i.e. the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. I just find it fascinating. I find it a little bit baffling. Um, There's a resistance among some um, about observing Lent because it's weird Um, but they'll drop their own 40 day sort of spiritual focus in some random place in like October or something which to me that seems weird like unto what what are we preparing for right let's let's like take go ahead and be okay with taking the nod from the historic church which has actually thought through this for a oh, couple of millennia and maybe has some wisdom to offer to us right or people like i don't want to celebrate lent that's a catholic thing no it's not a catholic thing it's a christian thing okay 1300 years before the reformation the church is observing lent right before there were a lot of the modern distinctions and labels and that Christians were celebrating an intentional season of preparation. So uh, whether it's a 40-day boot camp at your gym or a 40-day historic season of fasting, there is great wisdom, is my point. There's great power in an intentional season of focused growth. So how's it going? One weekend, any observations or thoughts? I'd love to hear a couple. We invited you last week. It's just an invitation. We're embracing five one-week fasts as we prepare for Easter. Last week's fast was a fast of sound. We issued the invitation on Sunday. By Monday night, I had like a dozen text messages from people. Uh, It's hard, but it's good, somebody said. Somebody came into my office and said, I did not know that I would find pain in the silence. What's going on, right? Yeah, that's that's where pain lives, actually. Pain lives in the silence, Yeah, which is why we cover it up. Uh, Somebody said, you have taken away my coping mechanisms. (laughs) I said, you're welcome. And I said, no, actually, I didn't. I didn't. I just invited you to recognize them. Hmm, right? Just invited you to recognize them kind of crazy. What did you observe? Did anyone try this for 10 minutes or for a week? What did you observe? Anyone want to offer some things? Yeah, Ryan. Okay. Beautiful. That, you know, yeah. It's great. Uh, it was good, my kids didn't like it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> great example. Thanks, Ryan. Somebody else had a hand up? Or anyone to shout it out? Yep. I was how many people found out they had issues with their cars. <laughs> 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 he said, how many people found out they had issues with their cars? Because you're finally hearing it. Yeah, I could. My truck needs an oil change yesterday. I, I, it's so funny that you said that. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? What would you observe? Bridget? That's a long commute. Okay. Wow, that's great. So you replaced that with the time of prayer and focused intercession. A couple more. What would you learn? What would you observe? Go ahead, Nikki. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. Yep, good. Yep, fantastic. One more. Anybody else? Go ahead. Hmm. What about the, do you want to say anything else about that? That's personal, but. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and isn't it interesting how our environment is so customized? It's like, I want my environment to be like this. I I need peaceful music right now. So it's not all, it's not bad, but we're so used to just tailor customizing things the way I want it, right? The way we want it. My hope would be that Reduction of noise, increase of silence would give space for the whisper of God, uh, and hopefully the cry of the vulnerable, that we would hear the cry of the vulnerable, and that we would have the, the grace to respond. Yeah. Why is this important? Well, we looked at this passage last week. We'll go back to it today. James 1.27, James, the brother of Jesus, writes this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after or to visit the orphan and the widow in their distress. Today I'll continue with our series, Meet My Needs, with the second half of this sentence, the second half of this verse, which continues, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Today's sermon is called Unpolluted. Here's the verse one more time. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this: to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I'm just gonna focus on the last ten sentence, the last ten words of that sentence, and three of those words in particular: the word and, the word guard or keep, and the word polluted. All right? Real simple outline. Here, first, and this is, I think, a very important word in this context. I think it might be James's most corrective word in this verse. And what is James doing? He is indirectly implying that some religion is unacceptable to God. He's indirectly implying that. He's then defining the kind of religion that is acceptable to God. He defines it. In fact, James goes so far as to say that certain kinds of acceptable to God religion are pure and faultless, without fault. And if James is right, and we believe with the historic church that he is, that this is holy scripture, this is writing of a man, James, that is inspired by God, then religion that is acceptable to God is religion that impacts others and impacts me. Okay, that's what he's saying. Religion that is acceptable to God is religion that makes a difference socially and makes a difference personally. Put another way, pure and faultless religion is about helping the poor and it's about personal holiness. Both. And. Not either or. Okay, so what's the problem? The problem is that throughout most of Christian history... And demonstrably, in almost all of American church history, churches are almost always lining up in one category or the other. There are, for instance, churches that are all about social justice, they're all about advocacy and activism, they're about serving the poor, they're about engaging the political environment, which is good. Good. And there are churches, which are all about personal spirituality, spiritual disciplines like prayer and worship, relational evangelism, which is understood as inviting people into a personal relationship with Jesus that is characterized by worship and prayer and devotion. So you've got outward emphasis churches and you've got inward emphasis churches. In other words, the dominant narrative, friends, used to tell the story of Christianity in America since the 1770s uses two primary categories. One category is the category of churches that focuses on, to use James's language, visiting the orphan and widow in their distress. The other category includes those churches which focus on, it's not that they only do this, but they emphasize, keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. It's easy to show that Christians either spend their energy, they apply sermons they hear, the books that they write on are about caring for the most vulnerable, or they spend their energy, they apply their sermons, and they write their books about growing closer to God. Some examples. Dr. Martin Luther King is a good example of a Christian activist His life is devoted to advocating for justice, right? His love for Jesus is what motivates him to fight against racism, to fight against war, to fight against poverty. His faith moved mountains for others. His personal piety, however, especially in the last few years of his life, it's just not an emphasis, it's not a focus. He's not preaching about it, he's not writing books about his personal prayer life. Okay. Another example, consider this category of writers that are known like spiritual, they're actually called spiritual writers like Hannah Whitehall Smith or Eugene Peterson or Dallas Willard or monks like Thomas Merton. They will emerge. They will descend from months on the mountaintop in solitude and silence with this really insightful book about the deeper life or about prayer or devotion. But they're not making a significant impact in terms of engaging the church's work In the world. So I know I'm painting with really broad strokes here, but what I'm trying to show is how it is difficult for Christians. It's even difficult for whole Christian movements to embrace the and. To restore culture and heal the soul. Super difficult. Most focus on one or the other, but the call has always been both. The call has always been and. Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's both, it's and. James is essentially saying the same thing here uh, visit the vulnerable and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And. John Wesley, an English priest who came to the Americas in the 1770s, starts the Methodist movement. He says, there's no personal holiness without social holiness. So he starts with the and. There's no personal holiness without social holiness. But historically, if you look at the churches that have come out of the Wesleyan tradition, think of like the Salvation Army, you're thinking about churches that are engaging culture. They're trying to take care of the poor. Not necessarily personal holiness. There's maybe an exception to that, which would be the Church of the Nazarene. We come from that Wesleyan tradition. That Methodist sort of... The, by 1900, there's more, Me- there's more Methodist churches than any other church in America. It's hugely influential. Right before 1900, 1895, the Church of the Nazarene starts with twin purposes, welcoming the poor and proclaiming personal holiness. So we started with an and, but almost nobody, at least in North America, associates the Church of the Nazarene as a main player in engaging the social problems of our culture, No, we have shifted over here. We focus much more on personal holiness, on individual spirituality. It's challenging, right? It should not be either or it should be both and. The call is and. Care for others and pursuit of personal holiness. Which do you focus on? Which is more natural for you? Which is like your go-to expression of your faith? Is it, helping people or is it personal prayer what right neither is bad both are critical but knowing and recognizing which way I lean this way that's why I like monks and monasteries and the deeper life and I've been soaking in this stuff forever I need to if I'm going to embrace the end I need to move more towards the restoration of all things Maybe you've heard me talking about it. I'm kind of preaching to myself, right? We need to be engaging culture. We need to be addressing brokenness in the world. This is much more natural for me. I got way more books about prayer than I do about social injustice and how to address it. Realize, if your life is primarily about helping others, you need to move towards the personal prayer emphasis because religion that God accepts is pure and fault faultless, is religion of the and. If you focus on personal holiness and you're neglecting the call of the vulnerable, you need to move in that direction because religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is religion of the and. It's the and. Social restoration and personal holiness. Okay, two more thoughts much more quickly. James writes... Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from becoming polluted by the world. This is his definition of uh, religion that God accepts. The key verb last week was the verb visit. We talked about that. The key verb this week is the word guard or maybe keep. Keep oneself. Sometimes it's stand guard. Friends, the idea is that you do something. This is active. This is not passive. This isn't getting sort of pulled along with culture. The fact that everybody else is doing it is totally irrelevant because this is a call toward action. The idea is that you are doing something. It's about personal intention. You are guarding something that matters, okay? Like when a parent tells their kid, no, you cannot watch that movie. You can't. Or when we actively cover up their eyes, When something unexpected happens or or we drive by a a wreck on the freeway and there's chaos all over the road, it's like, nope, you're not, I don't want you to see this. I don't want this coming into your life, right? It's when we hear somebody dropping all these bombs at the next table in the cafe, and so we reach down, we whisper to our kid, we try to re-engage their attention. What am I doing? I'm trying to guard their hearts. I'm trying to guard their minds. I'm asking them to pick up the gum wrapper on the floor of my truck, Because I've just pulled up behind somebody that's got an explicit image on the back of their car, right? I'm I'm guarding my kids' minds, my kids' hearts. We understand this. We're called to guard our children. We understand that. What James is saying is guard your soul, your soul. Guard and protect your heart, right? Yourself. In the rule of St. Benedict, Benedict writes, embrace a little strictness. In other words, set up some guardrails in your life. Say no to some things. Here's a crazy idea. Limit exposure. Out of a desire to guard and protect something that is of great value and worth, it's you, it is your soul, the battle for who you are, what you think, what you know. Paul tells the Ephesians, put on the armor of God. Guard your mind. Be careful what images you let come in and live in your head that come through your eyes. So set up some boundaries, embrace a little strictness about what you will see. Friends, check the lyrics that are becoming the soundtrack to your life. This stuff goes in and it makes its home there. Why should we have any kind of like protective sort of impulse, guarding impulse about ourselves? Well, it brings us to the third and final word which is polluted, polluted. This is what James says. Guard yourself from becoming polluted by the world. Notice what James doesn't say. He doesn't say, guard yourself from risk. He doesn't say, guard yourself from danger. He's cool with that. He's okay. He, there's no, like, hey, just make sure you stay safe. Uh-uh. That's really not a very Christian impulse, frankly. He doesn't say, guard yourself from personal sacrifice. No, that's what it's all about. He doesn't say, guard yourself from vulnerability. No, what does he say? Guard yourself from being polluted by the world. So realize that part of personal holiness is is protecting yourself. What are we protecting ourselves from? The destructive power of pollution. The perverted influence of pollution. I'll talk about what pollution is in a second. What it does is this, it compromises your clarity, doesn't it? Pollution restricts life. Pollution is toxic. Prolonged exposure to pollution causes disease and death. Here is literally what James writes. Literally, the word is without spot. So it's like, protect yourself from spots, which is hard to get. But here's what it made me think of. Sitting in a hospital room, And looking at a piece of, I don't know what it is, film of some kind. And there's a picture of the spinal column of someone I love. And I am praying to God we don't see a spot. You follow me? Because a spot on the organ, on the spinal cord, on the brain is not good. Because a spot is disease. A spot means cancer. And I want to be without spot. I don't want any of those spots in that picture. And listen... If I knew what I could do to keep that spot from happening, oh, I would go do it. I would go back in time and I would do whatever it took. And if I could do something to keep that spot from appearing on the soul of my own son, I would give my life for that. I would do whatever it took to remain spotless in that regard. Right? Because we get... It on that level and we're so tolerant and permissive about what comes in on another level and James is saying you need to protect yourself not from all these common things that Americans try to protect themselves against protect yourself from this pollution what he's actually talking about is stuff like pornography stuff like gossip right stuff like um, unhindered greed apathy unresolved hatred or division with another. Benedict urges the monks in his community to embrace a little strictness. And the point is not to live in some narrow-minded legalistic existence. Benedict says, embrace a little strictness, and then he says, to amend faults and safeguard love. In other words, set up some disciplines in your life that will either help you sin less Or love more. There is great value to whatever spiritual discipline will actually serve as as a guardrail against my sinning more. And thereby hurting the people I love the most. Or something that will serve as a reminder of how I can love better. Embrace a little strictness that will help you sin less and love more. And do you know what those closest to you will say to you when you do that? Do you know what your sons will say to you when they become adults and they recognize that certain things that have happened to others haven't happened to my dad because he was so strict about this thing? Do you know what they'll say? Do you know what your spouse will say to you if you embrace a little strictness when it comes to the onslaught of pornographic images in our culture? They will say thank you. That's what they'll say. They'll say, thank you for embracing a little strictness. Thank you for doing whatever you could to reduce the amount of spots showing up in our minds, our hearts, our souls. We live in a world, friends, with a lot of pollution and a lack of real holiness. We've allowed so much pollution in our lives that moral clarity is difficult. What should we do? Nobody seems to know. Spiritual confusion is common. And we frequently witness spiritual death. We rarely tell stories of spiritual birth and spiritual life. James writes, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Friends, that is not a run to the hills message. That's not a move to Montana. I I wanted to say that, but my aunt was here in the 9 o'clock from Montana. So I decided not to say that. It's not a run to Montana message, right? It's not an escape the culture message. Jesus says, be in the world. Just don't be of the world. We're supposed to be actively involved but not corrupted by it. We're supposed to get our hands dirty in addressing things that are broken without further breaking the things. How do we do that? Well, the primary tool for this job, friends, is fasting. That's how we do it. We fast. The best way to guard yourself from the kind of pollution that James is talking about, the kind of pollution that affects your mind, affects your heart, clouds your soul, is fasting. Fasting. Exercising your will to say shh to your hunger, to your desire, right to good things potentially. But you are exercising your will to make sure this being knows who's in charge. The will's in charge. The will decides. So I fast in order to Grow the strength of my will. Fasting is how a person develops self control. That's how it happens. It's very difficult to develop self control without fasting, without going without something that you want. All right, let me wrap up with this. Uh, I've recently become totally captivated by this guy named Chad Wright. I heard an interview with him, so I started reading about him. As my family knows I do, I just, I just get hooked by things or people, and I just go, and I've been able to correspond with him a little bit. He's fascinating to me. First ever recipient of a voluntary open-heart surgery in order to qualify to go to BUDS, which is the Navy training school for Navy SEALs. Guy had a cyst on his heart, not a problem, never going to bother him, unless he does intense physical training deep underwater, which you have to do if you're a Navy SEAL. So he wants to be a Navy SEAL so bad, he goes to 17 surgeons before one of them will say, yes, I'll open up your heart and take that little cyst off, and then you can apply, which he does and he makes it, becomes a Navy SEAL, goes through several tours, becomes a Christian, becomes an ultra-marathoner, and now he's a trainer. And the dude's on fire. And he wrote something recently that is my inspiration for Lent this year. This is just kind of keeping me focused. This is what he writes. What is this flesh that screams that I, what I should or should not do? It consistently begs for pleasure. It is only self-seeking. Perpetual comfort is its request. In the morning, it whispers for more sleep. In the cold, it complains for warmth. In the wet, its only thought is to get dry. At mealtime, it craves more food than necessary. On the run, it asks me to stop short of my goal. In life, it yearns after lustful thoughts. Heed the flesh and destruction will swiftly follow. Deny yourself that the flesh might realize it is but a vessel. Oh, come on. That is so good. Is that not so good? Deny yourself that the flesh might realize it is but a vessel. So this week I invite you to fast. We're doing five one-week fasts. You're invited to join in. Any of the five weeks, all of the five weeks. Last week's fast was sound. This week's fast is food, not fast food. Fast, don't eat food, all right? This is a classic dietary fast. It is hard to improve on fasting food. There's all kinds of things we could fast. We get real creative with it. But it's hard to improve on fasting food in terms of this basic effectiveness, in terms of feeling your hunger, saying no to what your body wants, and then dealing with the temper tantrum your body will throw in response to your saying, shh, no, I'm hungry. No, you're not. No, you're not. You ate 90 minutes ago, right? You are not hungry, right? This is how, friends, this is how we will get to a place where our will is actually strong enough to resist temptation. This is how we get there. This is how we grow to a place where we can be tempted with something that our flesh says, I want that, and our will says, no. Right. So the invitation is to embrace some kind of dietary fast this week. Skip a meal a day, uh, You know, fast sugar, fast meat, embrace a simple diet with just a few ingredients. Do what is reasonable and challenging for you. It should be reasonable and it should be challenging. No food for two days, um, or just restriction of of some dessert or something. I mean, it could really range, it could run the gamut. Some reasonable and yet challenging food fast. What am I looking for in this? I'm paying attention to what really rules me trying to strengthen my ability to make decisions even when they affect me negatively or so it feels. Right? Yeah. And my prayer when I fast becomes, God, show me what I really need. Show me whom I, whom I really need. Yeah. So in conclusion... Friends, there is a kind of religion that is pure and acceptable to God. Isn't that amazing? There is. We have really messed it up, but there is a kind of religion that is acceptable to God. It is religion. It is that set of beliefs or convictions that compels a person to visit the vulnerable in their distress and keeps oneself from becoming polluted by the world. Amen. Let's pray. So, Lord, once again, I ask for the grace to be intentional about my relationship with you this week. Not to just take it for granted or to be passive. Not to assume. But to be intentional about drawing near to you, becoming more Christ-like in my pursuits and in my reactions to the pain and the brokenness of this world. Would you fill up the life of our church community this week, may any intentions toward holiness be fueled and filled by you and with you. May this be a week where our spirituality makes a real difference in our lives. And may this week prepare us to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus more fully, more wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen.